Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Johnny and AJ here. How well can you influence people and actually make them like you even more? If you struggle with this skill, it can make building relationships and growing your social capital painfully slow. Listen, your influence is the key to developing meaningful relationships and breaking through in your career to be seen as a charismatic leader. Now, after coaching over 10,000 clients on how to master social confidence, we've learned a thing or two about what it actually takes to grow your influence. Are you curious about your influence level? Take our 60-second quiz to find out how your influence stacks up against top performers at theartofcharm.com slash influence. Remember, you can do something about your influence. Take our short quiz and learn your influence index score instantly at theartofcharm.com slash influence. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. All right, let's kick off today's show. Today, we have none other than Arthur Brooks with us, and we guarantee this episode will make you scientifically happier before you even finish it. Arthur is the best-selling author of 12 books on topics ranging from economic opportunity to human happiness. Today, we're discussing his upcoming book, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier, which he co-wrote with none other than Oprah Winfrey. He joins us to discuss the neurochemical difference between pleasure and enjoyment, why lone wolves need socialization to increase their happiness, why extroverts are actually more happy, and what introverts can do to find more happiness, how to find your unique mix of happiness-unhappiness to scientifically improve your mood, and the secret to effectively managing your emotions to achieve more in life. We had so much fun. We're just going to jump right into the conversation with Arthur. You know that right now in the United States, one in six Americans is not talking to a close friend or family member because of politics. We yes. find that family schisms yeah. are at an all-time high. And the result is that people are suffering just completely unnecessarily. 
It's like people don't know the rules anymore. It's like, I'm going to step over $100 bills to get to nickels. I mean, I'm going to stop talking to my mom because she voted for Trump. I mean, or whatever. It's just so crazy. It's like we forgot all of these basics of what brings that, how human love brings happiness to us. So that's one of the reasons that Oprah and I wrote that chapter is that everybody comes to us and is talking to us about this. It's like, ah, I haven't talked to my parents. I haven't talked to my children. I have a, I had a friend who told me that he, he has a, he has a, a 15 year old grandson, he thinks, but he hasn't talked to his daughter for the past 30 years. Oh I'm thinking, no way, man. No way. I said, why? He says, well, we just didn't see eye to eye. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, growing up, I remember spirited political discussions around the holidays. We had family members on both sides and they'd argue and yell and then they'd hug it out and, and go on their merry way. And we'd see each other again the next holiday. It was not this like complete schism and separate from one another based on politics. Yeah, you know, our families are microcosms of what's actually happening to our country and to our world right now, which is being pulled apart for, well, for a lot of different reasons. One is that the people are, are, are predatory. You know, leaders and media are predatory. And the more we hate, the more they profit and the less, and less happy we are. And there's technology that's actually accelerating these trends. And this is a huge problem. So we got to, man, we need a love rebellion in this world is what we need. Well, we've been laughing about that internally because we found that our negative show titles perform better than the positive ones. And we're a show about bringing positivity, but it doesn't lead to the clicks and downloads. I know. So what we should call this one, this is going to be all about, actually it's going to be about positivity and love, but let's call it how to hate your enemies more effectively. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. So so there was something very brilliant, right, that you just said, and I was talking to AJ about this earlier when we were prepping for this interview, which is if we're going to discuss love in such a way, right, then what we have is people that we care immensely about and we need to protect them. And the only way to protect them is with intolerance to which that would harm them. Right. I know. It's crazy. I've been getting a little bit dismayed with some of the guests who come on and it's always about this love. And But we need to protect our family, which we're now discussing is how important it is to us. But also as we're developing, we find out what our core values are. Those core values propel us into our best self. And if you are not ready and able to protect those core values with intolerance or hate, you will be subjected by outside forces that will work to destroy you. Right. Now, this is all true. And the truth of the matter is, of course, we have values, and that's a very good thing to have. But here's the point. When you have values, they should be only ever used as a gift and never as a weapon. You've eviscerated the moral content of your opinions and your values and your, I mean, all of your beliefs. If you if you use them as a cudgel, you know, you can say, oh, I have these beliefs about my politics or my religion, whatever it happens to be. They're like a bouquet of flowers, and you open the door, and I smack you across the face with this bouquet of flowers. Well, guess what? That was not effective as a as a, a gesture of love. Quite the contrary, you have to you have to understand that it only ever works as a gift, never as a weapon, and and that's what what people are being encouraged to forget. Quite frankly, they're saying if you have these views, if you have these values, if somebody disagrees with you, you need to cancel them. You need to get them out of your life. But that, those are the people who are encouraging you to do that. If they're, they're your college professors or your cable host or your presidential candidate is telling you to do that, then they're trying to profit and even at your expense. 
What I'm really curious about your perspective on is, so looking at the family unit and love and bringing positivity to those around us, there's this growing virtual world that we're all exposing ourselves to where most of this hate and intolerance lies, but we're not sharing that even with family members. We'll be on our screen separately at the dinner table. I was traveling across Europe and I didn't see as many screens, but in the US, if you go out to dinner, you see the parents are on their phones, my wife and I will turn to each other, we'll look, and then the kids are on their iPads. Yeah. And they're living in a virtual world that isn't supporting this love, isn't supporting each other. It's full of hate, full of negativity, but they're not actually sharing what they're seeing and consuming that's then leading to these ideas internally, the struggle, and ultimately this unhappiness. Yeah, no, we get to, to understand that phenomenon, we gotta get back to the basic neuroscience of what's happening and how we're being manipulated in terms of our neurophysiology. So if I said, hey, AJ, I got, a, I got a strategy for you for how to get your calories and become healthy. Eat every meal at McDonald's. You'd be like, what are you, you're crazy, that's insane. Because quite, quite, there's nothing wrong with McDonald's from time to time, but if you eat every meal at McDonald's, you're gonna get too many calories, not enough nutrients. You'll become malnourished and obese at the same time, and you'll be constantly hungry because your body's gonna be craving ma- these, all your macronutrients that you need in balance and abundance. Okay, now, That's the same thing as what's happening to us when we're tied to our devices. Why? Because the one thing we really need from our our family relationships, and for that matter from any relationships, is a neuropeptide in the brain that functions as a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is the hormone of human bonding. It's intensely pleasurable. It's the reason that you know when when your first child is born and you and you and you lay eyes eye contact, it's like the Fourth of July inside your head, and you would immediately die for this infant who doesn't know who you are. And, 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 you know, a neuroscientist will say that so you don't leave the baby on the bus or something. But the truth of the matter is, no, 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 no. It's magic. It's actually magic. We crave oxytocin with our family members, with our friends, you know, with our close associates, with our, with our kin, with our people is what it comes down to. Now, what happens is when we have social media, we think that it's going to give us what we need because it's, it's kind of a social contact. But oxytocin comes from eye contact and human touch. It's, so social media is basically the McDonald's fries and milkshakes of social yes. life is what it comes down to. And the problem is you don't get what you need, but you get addicted. And so what's happening is that we're not getting what we need by being with our families because we're so addicted to this. You know, We're not eating the, 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 the asparagus and the salmon in front of us because the, the burgers and fries are so tasty but they're so low in nutritional value. That's what's going on. And that means, by the way, that our dopamine circuits are engaged. We're getting these reward circuits and they're unhealthy for us and we have to break the addiction or we're going to get malnourished and obese, socially speaking. So how do we square that virtual world that we're consuming but not sharing with one another? Yeah, well, what we, ha- what we have to recognize, knowledge is power. You know, so there's a reason I do, I do the work that I do because one of the things that I found is the best way for people to get better is to understand the problem in the first place. When I actually explain the science of what's going on, this new book with Oprah, by the way, it has a thousand academic references in it. Why? Because it's a version of the class I teach at Harvard on the science of happiness. And when people see, oh my God, goodness, this is what's happening inside my brain, they start to take control. When you actually see that you're being manipulated and your brain chemistry is getting torqued by these outside tools, then you're like, no, 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 not so fast anymore. And then you start to recognize it, you start to take action, and this is the beginning of the solution. It starts with knowledge, it goes to habits, you share it with others, and then you're free. 
which is so important and having an understanding of how those influences look to destroy the things that are important to you, which allow you to progress and become your best self. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, there's always been a lot of things out there that maladapt our evolution in nature. There always have yes. been. I mean, we're super good. It's like, you know, we have natural endorphins in our brains that help us to cope with to, to mute our stress and pain responses in times of acute crisis. So what do chemists do? They figure out what those endorphins look like molecularly and they turn them into fentanyl. And it's like, oh, good. Yeah, you'll be super happy if you take this. It's all good. You know, words nobody's ever said. The secret of my happiness, you know, <laughs> meth, your fentanyl. Like, no, of course, because you, <laughs> you supercharge these natural phenomena. You know, you want more human contact. I'm going to give it to you electronically. And then we're wondering why it doesn't work out so great because we maladapt it with our human ingenuity. But we, if we understand that, then we can actually redress that with our own knowledge and, and our own conscious decisions as opposed to just kind of giving in. Exposing those forces and having a general understanding of the mechanisms and how they work is in, incredibly important. And and now that that all of the manipulation and marketing of what's going on online is now being exposed, people are now seeing it for what for what it is. We've now had what fifteen years, uh, close to twenty years of all these social media platforms and and what they are going to produce as we indulge in it as a culture. Right. So once that happened, now I have to go back and think about television. And now I have to go back and think about radio. And again, it's those same forces looking to profit from that. And if families cannot build themselves up into powerful units, then they cannot be competitive. Yeah, that's right. right? And so it is works against the, the people who are running things, those forces in order to, to, to break that down and they, and they keep those things atomized. And now when I look at my family, on my grandfather's side, there was a, there was a large uh, family. And on my dad's side, there was a large family. But that was the end of it because everybody had divorces. For everyone on my dad's side, everyone in my mom's side. And we begin to see the, the atomizing. And of course, how it affected my own self and how I looked at family. And now of, of learning all of this and getting to a middle age in my life where I'm able to put a larger picture together, I can understand that these forces have been there for, for quite some time. And now we need to counter them with having an idea that that the social media is junk food, just like McDonald's is. And it may keep us sustained. It may, you may have the illusion of keeping us connected, but it's not nourishing us to be our best. And then of course, to be able to lead those around us to be at their best because they need to model somebody. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. And you're, you're bringing up a super important point just from the, in the secret to being a happier person is not being managed by your urges and emotions and desires, your attachments and your feelings, not being managed by those things. You know, I, I, I walk through all of my, and, and all of my research and, and, and this new book in particular, it starts off with this, this truth that it, you can manage your feelings or, or they can manage you, you choose. And so we talk about this basic technique called metacognition that lies at the beginning of building a better life, building a better family, building a better, you know, religious life, friendships, work life, whatever you want. 
that starts with understanding that that you have feelings all the time. You have feelings that come from the limbic system of your brain, a very ancient system that's that's uh, that takes outside stimuli, it turns them into feelings so that you can react to them appropriately. It's a natural human language across all cultures. You know, uh, uh, fear, sadness, anger, disgust, joy, interest, these basic emotions, we all have them. The problem is if we react according to them, if we live according to our limbic system, then we're just going to kind of take these these stimuli and and walk through life and hope for the best. And so, and so when it comes down to, for example, you know, there's been a lot of divorces in your family, John, a lot of divorces in your family. So basically, well, I don't know, I, I guess this is the way that things work in our family. And if I you know, feel unhappy with my wife, I guess we're just going to get divorced. Like, no, learn from it and choose your reaction so you can break the cycle. And the way you do that is with metacognition, putting more space between your limbic system and the prefrontal cortex of your brain where you can actually react on purpose. And this book is full of techniques on how to do that from journaling to meditation, to prayer, to walking in nature, to actually to, 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 to therapy, whatever it happens to be, where you can learn about yourself and you can be the pilot, you can be the CEO. So the, the you know the, so the, the workers are not running amok inside your brain. You've got executives <laughs> that are actually running the, the running the operation. Well, when we talk about social media, the emotion that comes up the most is envy. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Because for the first time in our lives, we're being confronted with how everyone else on the planet is living. You could pick up your device at any moment and see what people across the world are doing and how much more they have than you. So let's talk about envy in particular. How do we manage that emotion as it's evoked by media? Envy is, a, is an emotion that actually comes through human evolution. And the reason is because you don't know your place in the hierarchy or how you work in your tribe unless you see how other people are acting and you need some sort of an impetus to get better. So envy comes because people want to get better related to others. That's that's a very normal human emotion. The problem is it's deeply maladapted to, to modern life. We're not worried about getting thrown out and walking the frozen tundra alone and dying. You know, we're talking about about how many Instagram followers you have. I mean, it's idiotic. And yet we treat it as if, you know, I don't have enough, I don't have enough buffalo meat for the winter if I don't have enough people following me on Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called at this point. Yeah, I mean, you get it. It's just crazy how the human brain works. So what we have to do is recognize why it exists, understand it, and manage it is the way that we work on that. Now, envy has two kinds. There's two types of envy. There's benign envy and there's malign or malignant or malicious envy. Now, the benign envy is where we envy somebody who actually deserves to have a good thing happen to them. You can envy my, you know, my co-author, Oprah Winfrey. But nobody's going to say she didn't earn it, man. I mean, she kicked butt for decades and created tons of value and is admired because people really know that she's done a good thing and dedicated herself to making lives better for other people. Astronauts, you know, this kind of thing. And then fill in the blank on anybody who didn't earn it, which is the reason when you pick up, you know, these magazines, you know, Us Weekly or something, and it's like the scandal of the week from some person who's famous for being famous. And you're like, yes, right? Because that's malicious envy. And the worst thing in life is malicious envy. It will ruin your life. So the way to deal with it is to laugh at malicious envy on purpose, to say, yeah, 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 forget about it. I am simply not. Let me think a little bit about how crummy that person's life actually is. You know, famous for being famous, I'm sorry. I've met them. You guys have met them. You've had some on your show. Not happy, right? And then think about the people that have benign envy. You, you think about, about the fact that they're actually admirable and say, I've decided to admire them instead of envying them. 
turn your envy into admiration and you win. You win 10 times out of 10 because you're going to try to be more like them, but you're not going to be consumed with this idea that take them down a peg, you know, that, and so that's the way to do it. You disregard through reality, the people with whom your envy is malicious and you turn your envy into admiration for the people who are on the good side of the ledger. And then you start to win. The other way to look at that as well is if you get consumed by the malicious envy, it takes you off of your path and puts you on their path and you cannot beat them if you are on their path because it is their path. And so you have to stay on your own. Now, everything inside of you uh, wants you to compete, wants you to jump in because that envy, if not checked, will consume you, which is why, to bring up your point, it is so important to understand that and to be able to chuckle and laugh it off and get back to what you need to be doing for you and your family. Yeah, for sure. It's also being in touch with the things that kind of touch you off and, and bother you most about your envy. I mean, I'm looking at you, John, or you, AJ, and I'm thinking, man, with that hair, I couldn't be stopped. I mean, it's like, you guys are beautiful dudes with this head of hair. At one point, I mean, this is like a once great civilization on top of my head. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is look, we all got our weak points, right? And we tend to focus on that kind of thing is the way that it works. And you got to turn it into a little, a source of hilarity because it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous, the things that we envy other people for. And this brings up the key point again, be conscious, be knowledgeable, be in charge, use your prefrontal cortex. Don't feel, think, think, think is the way that it comes down. And that's the secret to almost everything with emotional self-management. And with that is a level of self-awareness. So some of our listeners are going to say, okay, a Harvard professor on happiness, Oprah Winfrey, they're just naturally happy. Like, (laughs) what can I learn from them? And why should I be listening to you two tell me about happiness? Oprah actually is a naturally happy person. She's got a very, very sunny disposition. It's true. But uh, not me. Not me. I study happiness because I want it. You know, (laughs) know, happiness is not like basketball where you get into the NBA because you're naturally good and then get better. I know everybody who's a serious scientist in the business of happiness, from the social psychologists, the, the behavioral economists like me, to the neuroscientists, et cetera. They're all studying it for a reason, because they want it. You know, it's, it's not research, it's me-search is what it comes down to. And I look at my students and I give them these happiness self-tests. So I have to take 16 of them in my graduate class and my graduate seminar and happiness. And, and, and they, the, the average comes above me every single time. Now, I've gotten a lot happier since I started studying it, because the whole idea was, knowledge, practice, teaching. That's the algorithm for actually getting happier. And I've gotten 60% happier, but I'm still below my students. Why? Because, you know, look, the data say that 60% or about 50% of your happiness is genetic. 50% of your happiness actually, or your baseline mood come, you mean, literally your mother made you unhappy is the way that it works. And, and, and that's important to keep in mind because that means you got to work more on your habits. And for me, that means doing the work, man, you got to do the work like anything else for sure. So you said something interesting there. How does teaching actually impact the happiness? Yeah. So there's this great set of studies that shows that if you want to learn something deeply and remember it, you got to teach it to others. This is how you do it. And the reason is because, once again, uh, there's a, a, lot of, um, a lot of research that shows that you think you understand something because it makes sense, but you actually haven't lodged it into a place in your brain and using parts of your brain where you can explain it appropriately and remember it. So the way that you can learn things very permanently is by teaching them to others, even if your understanding is not yet perfect. So I assign people 
my final exam in my happiness science class at the Harvard Business School is that they actually have to teach a version of the class and turn in a video to me of them teaching the class. So, and sometimes I'll get like a video in Indonesian or something. It's like, I, I, I don't know, man, I can, look at the, I can look at the expression on your parents' faces over Zoom while you're teaching this class, but they have to teach it and turn in at least, you know, a certain number of minutes that, that kind of drops the needle at different points of the video when they're teaching this class, because I know if they can teach it, that they know it and that they're going to remember it. This is the way that that works out. And so I have a lab at Harvard called the Leadership and Happiness Lab that's dedicated to teaching people how to be happiness teachers whether it's formally in school or as a CEO or as a podcast host or a politician or whatever they happen to do, so they can embed the happiness technology in any other job that they have and become happiness teachers. I just want to say to our X Factor members who are listening to this right now, you're on deck. You're going to be teaching one of the next sessions, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so how can we, is there a test that you recommend our listeners take to raise their own happiness self-awareness? Yeah, for sure. So there's a bunch of them. There's a couple of them in the book. Um, there's a lot of you know general happiness inventories that you can take on the web. There's one by uh, that was developed by a, a researcher at the University of California at Riverside. Her name is Sonia Lubomirsky. And Google anything that sounds like that and you'll find her because she's one of the most distinguished research. She's Russian. She's one of the most distinguished researchers in happiness. And she has excellent self-tests on it. Now, well, if we want to find out about our basic mood structure, this is where it really gets interesting because it turns out that happiness and unhappiness are not opposites. You know, happiness is not the absence of unhappiness nor vice versa. They exist and they're largely emotions that are produced in different parts of the brain. So you can be an unusually happy and an unusually unhappy person or happy and low unhappiness, high unhappiness and low happiness, or low in both. You got to know that to be able to manage yourself and surround yourself with people who compliment you. I strongly recommend understanding this and marrying somebody who's your compliment and not somebody who's just like you because it'll be like daggers drawn forever or, or worse. So here's how it works. This is this test called the PANAS test. The Positive Affect Negative Affect Series, P-A-N-A-S. After September 12th, you can go to my website, arthurbrooks.com, and take a version of that test. And it's a super scientifically evaluate, uh, uh, validated test. And that'll show you if you're a high, high, a high affect person, you have more than average intense positive and more than average intense negative emotions. You're unusually positive, but unusually not negative. In other words, that's high, low or vice versa. So high, high is called a mad scientist. Mad scientists have extremely strong affect, both positive and negative. They're like, boom, 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 boom. I'm a mad scientist, like to the max, man. And so I didn't know this until I started doing this research, this neuroscience research, because I, did, I thought I was just, you know, kind of melancholy and didn't feel good along. No, 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 I'm super happy. I'm just also super unhappy. And so what I need to do is I need to manage my negative affect, not my positive affect, my negative affect. My wife is a cheerleader. Cheerleaders, high positive, low negative. Good for her. Lucky for her. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> makes me sick. Anyway, so there's high negative and low positive. Those are the poets. They tend to be extremely creative. They're really, they're really clear on what the threats to the environment are, right? They're not always fun to be around. And then there's low, low, people who are low affect. They're not less happy or less unhappy than others. They're just lower intensity of their emotions. These are called the judges. These are slow. They're steady. They're the people you want around in high-stress professions like being a surgeon or a judge, for example. Oprah Winfrey's a judge, by the way. She's very steady emotionally. 
So we're good complements as as writing partners because I'm a mad scientist. She's a judge. You know, I find her incredibly reassuring. She finds me entertaining, and the result is that we work, <laughs> that, that we work together really well. But you know, and when you have two people of the same kind, it can be a problem. You got to understand yourself because you have unique gifts. It's a quarter in each basket. We need all four in our society. But you also need to know how to manage it with the people around you. If you're a cheerleader, don't marry a cheerleader. Because you know what they do? They spend all the money. They always spend all the money. Because it's like, there's going to be no problems. No problems. The money will come from someplace. Like Smooth spend, sailing. Spend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spend, spend, spend. So you get the idea on how you need to. And so that's all in this book. And, and, and it's super interesting. And that's something I recommend everybody learn about themselves. So we touched on two of the four pillars, yeah. friends and family. Yeah. What are the other four pillars? Well, the, two, the other two of the four pillars are faith and work. So, so it's basically, think about it this way. If you want a better life on purpose, take it as a multi-year project. Learn the science and build, starting with emotional self-management. When you've mastered that, that's the first half of this book, by the way. Then when you've got that, you can start, you won't be distracted with the stupid stuff in life like, you know, social media and, you know, shopping therapy and streaming Netflix in the middle of the day because you're feeling bored or whatever. You'll be able to pay attention to the stuff that you really want to pay attention to. And the four things, the four pillars on which to build your life, this is your happiness 401k plan, basically, is faith, family, friends, and work. Those are the big four. Now, faith, I don't mean my faith. You know, I'm a Catholic. Um, I told you before that, you know, my kids get married at like nine years old or something like that and then have 40 yeah. kids each. You know, that's, that's, you raise them Catholic, they do Catholic stuff. But, and I'm not saying that my way is the only way, but you need something transcendental to your day to day, you know, routine life. You need to zoom, you need to get small, is what you need to get, right? Back in the, like in the 60s, I can't remember what rock and roller said that getting small was a euphemism for getting high. That's not, that's not what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, yeah, people are at Burning Man doing just that. Getting small, man. No, but anyway, so getting small, which means that you have to get yourself in perspective so you can have peace, so you're not focused on your own little thing again and again and again and again. And so that might mean reading the Stoic philosophers like my buddy Ryan Holiday. That might mean uh, practicing the faith of your youth or developing a meditation practice or walking in nature or studying the works of Johann Sebastian Bach with great seriousness or you know whatever it happens to be. But you need something that zooms you out. That's the faith one. And then there's the work one. And the work one is really simple. It's not 100 hours being a lawyer. It's, it's not even earning a lot of money or having power or prestige. It's two things. Earning your success by creating value with your life and feeling like you're serving other people. Those are the characteristics. I don't care if you're an electrician or you're a general contractor or a lawyer or the president of the United States or you know, a podcast host or a professor at Harvard. It's those two things all day long that'll bring you the joy that you need. So those are the four, faith, family, friends, and work. So we have a lot of lone wolves listening to the show and that serving others piece. Why is that so important? Because dignity comes from being needed. Despair comes from being managed and not needed. That's the truth. I mean, everybody sort of asks, why is American poverty policy such a catastrophe? And the answer is because we treat poor people like, manage, like liabilities to manage. That's, that's what we do. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at the problem. If people are, are liabilities to manage, you have stripped their dignity away. People need to be needed. That's the bottom line. If you, want to, if you want people to have a good life, they have to feel like they're needed people. And that's the reason that serving others is what brings you that sense of dignity that comes from your work. We're pack animals, man. 
we're social and we're made to serve each other. And this is, this is sort of the divine path of human life is the love that we can express. And, and again, remember the four pillars, faith, family, friends, and work. You can boil this down. Love of the divine, love of your family, love of your friends, and an expression of your love through everybody and the way you earn your daily bread. Love, 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 and more love is what it comes down to. That idea of, of serving your fellow man, and, and which is going to put us in, in touch with each other in, in a positive manner of, of serving others, you can make an argument that was at least the, the beginning dismantling of that was in the Industrial Revolution, because now we have all these people working for a paycheck, but not directly seeing how their work enhances and improves the lives of others. And once that was that result, that being able to see that was uh, taken away, then anything could be put in its place. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That's a really good point. You know, the truth is the ultra mechanization of how people work dehumanizes us, not because of, you know, what we're actually doing, you know, stamping out widgets, sitting next to a machine. That's not the problem. The problem is that we can't actually see the impact that we're having on other people. We're too far away. We're contributing a concept called subsidiarity, which is pushing things down to the lowest possible level. Now, it doesn't mean that we all have to be back out in the fields and some primitive society that we that we you know that Europe had in the 14th century. I'm not talking. I know people who want that. I don't want that. Is the bottom sure. line. But we don't have to choose. You know, we can actually have a, a, a wealthy society that's advanced and does all kinds of good things, but is not highly. This is what Karl Marx talked about: alienation. He got so much wrong, you know, by, by th saying that, you know, all that mattered was just units of labor and that capital didn't matter. And, and, you know, the way that he got so much wrong about how humans are wired, that you could change human society so we wouldn't compete against each other and from ev each one according to his abilities and to each one according to his needs. I mean, that, it gets so much wrong about human behavior. But one thing he got right was this concept that we are alienated from the means of production because to be a true human means to sanctify your work and understand the benefit that it actually creates. And what I think has happened, we've talked a little bit about this trend on the show, is with what happened through the pandemic and coming out of it is our survival instinct was so strong that our focus narrowed to the here and now, like the creature comforts in the moment. And a lot of what we're talking about here on happiness is long tail stuff. This is like your entire life 
and we've gone into a remote work environment. We've seen some studies recently that socialization in the workplace was actually really important to our health and happiness, and that's been severed with more time spent in a hybrid model or completely remote. And our focus was on, well, the here and now is I'm getting DoorDash, I have streaming, I'm safe and comfortable in my house. Who cares about friends? Like, why do I need to worry about this stuff? Why do I need to worry about family? I can just have a FaceTime with them. When in actuality, it's these moments together of helping one another, being in love with our family, being in love with our social group that actually creates the meaning in life that we're talking about. Long tail stuff, not short tail wins. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the COVID-19 was absolutely catastrophic for human happiness. And if you look at the data, it's just, it couldn't be clearer. So you find that happiness on average in the United States has been slightly declining since the late 90s. And there's lots of reasons why. And then, and then you, it would kind of punctuate the equilibrium a little bit. It's just sort of staying constant, slightly declining. Social media is, is introduced, it goes down, like a, a big dog leg down. Because people start to get lonelier when they get on the, you know, the burger and fry social diet we talked about before. And then COVID comes and it's in the tank. I mean, ordinarily, about 30% of the population is very happy about their lives. 15% very unhappy about their lives. It's reversed. Those two things have been reversed since COVID-19. You're about twice as likely to say that you're unhappy as that you are about very happy about your life in general. And the reason has everything to do with this, the way that we've severed these, these social bonds, for sure. And, you know, what happens, like anything else, you know, when you, when you provoke the symptoms of, of clinical depression, which you will if you take away all your social bonds, I mean, you just will, um, what happens then is that tends to impair the executive functions of our brain. So we actually can't see the origin of the problem and we, and we resist, the, we resist the, 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 the way to fix the problem. So for example, you're really lonely and you're really sad. And so you, you, you cocoon in a warm, comfy blanket eating Haagen-Dazs watching Netflix at like two in the afternoon. That's a big problem. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. You should call a friend. You should ride your bike. You should get outside. You should see people. And those are all the things that are like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to that party. Go to the party. And so that's the problem. And the whole nation had its executive centers impaired by the involuntary lockdowns. And you see people who still aren't going out. It's just the craziest thing. Yeah. And people who have made life decisions that cut themselves off from other people. It's like, yeah. I decided to move into a cabin in the woods. It's like, I, I'm sure it's peaceful and beautiful, but, <laughs> you know, bears are not your, you're not, you're not going to keep you warm at night, man. <laughs> this comes back to something we were saying earlier about hating the things that attack uh, the things that are dear to us, especially our core values and the importance of relationships. Yeah. And uh, in the book, you discuss some different levels of relationships and, and how they uh, make us feel. So I would love to discuss that for our audience a bit. There's a lot that definitely realize that since COVID, something has happened. And they also see that their peer group is dwindling without replacement friends. Right. Like an idea we talked to talked about with Stephen Kotler. But the other part is, I think a lot of people would recognize that they have acquaintances that are deal friends, but they don't have anyone who, in the terms of the book, useless friends and, and, and what that meant and how important that actually is. Because I think we've now gotten to a point since COVID where we're now viewing everything as very transactional. Yeah. 
No, there's a lot to that. I mean, you find that people are, when they're dealing with each other, there's a particular reason for doing so. It's like, why am I going to come into the office? Well, because I have to do X, Y, and Z, as opposed to the ordinary routine where you'd have some, you know, spontaneity in, in how you, you know, see particular people on your way to the office and around the water cooler. And there's nothing spontaneous anymore when we have to plan everything out because the logistics are such that, that people are working off site unless they don't have to. So that basically gets to the big point that you're making right here, which is that, you know, when, when I, I ask people if they're lonely and a lot of people are, but don't know it. This is a really interesting thing. And the reason is they don't yeah. know it is they're not 100%. isolated. I mean, they're around tons of people. And so I say, okay, okay. So, so let's, let's, let's do a little test for the audience here. We can go into the testing portion of the podcast here. It's like, make a list of the people that are closest to you, by which I mean, you have the most, co- the most, uh, the most frequent interaction. Okay. Now, after each one, write an R or a D, real or deal. You know the difference. Everybody knows the difference between deal friends and real friends. And if you, you need a little primer on it, then John just gave that to us, which is real friends are, or deal friends are useful. They're very useful to you. Real friends are cosmically useless to you, not worthless. <laughs> right? I, 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 that. I have worthless friends too, but that's a different problem. So <laughs> that's yeah. <what> <laughs> useless friends you just love them you just love them and that's by the way there's a word in in greek that aristotle used for useless friends he called them atelic they're atelic relationship or telos means the reason for something so they're just like reasonless friends these are the people we lose contact with during covid these are the people we lose contact with when we become lawyers and join law firms and work 100 hours a week why? Because it's costly to keep up with your useless friends. I mean, it requires that you go out of the way. Now, since I've done this research, by the way, I've changed my life. I never do research that is not going to work for my life. And, you know, my column every Thursday in the Atlantic, I, I, I always suggest three practices. And I've written my column eight weeks in advance, and I've tried them out, right? So I'm, I'm the guinea pig on everything. So it's like I'm always cycling through these different practices. And when it came to real and deal, man, this was a, this was a game changer for me. Um, I realized that I had a you know, bazillion deal friends. Cause I, you know, I'm on the road 48 weeks a year, you know, I have a company, I do all this stuff. Right. And I teach at university, et cetera. The problem was that I was actually crowding out the real friendships. And so I said, no, 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 no. I looked at the, you know, the people that I, I have been closest with, I really love the most that are not my immediate family. And I made a point of an hour a week on the phone with a couple of guys. An hour a week on the phone with a couple of guys. And it, it's expensive. You know, my hourly rate is, not, is like is $4 an hour. So that's not nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so, yeah. And, um, and it's been great because, you know, I'm eating my own cooking here. And I can tell you, it really works. Yeah, for our X Factor members, I encourage them all to have a Wednesday reconnection practice. Hump day, everyone's kind of doesn't have plans. They're tired of work and to reconnect and rekindle some of these connections that you've frayed or lost due to the pandemic or moving or career. As you said, it's so much easier to keep the deal friends because you think there's some payoff at the end. Oh, they're going to help you move your career forward or they're going to be there to do something that's going to allow you to get to that next level for yourself. But in actuality, that's not really what we need only in our friend group. For sure. And another point that the book makes is that we've also started to homogenize our friends. Yeah. So we yeah. talked a little bit about this in the beginning about, okay, writing off political disagreements and family members. We're doing this in droves with our friends. We hear an opinion we don't like. We hear a view we don't like. And we're like, all right, you're out. And we see this rise online. And we've talked a little bit about the show Toxic Friends, but now everyone's being painted as toxic. Oh, you're toxic. Get away from me. I don't want to be involved with you. Friend breakups. 
in actuality, we need these social connections in our life to be happy, to sustain us. Yeah, and we need people who are really different than us is actually the point I think that you're making as well, which is, by the way, you want to know the number one reason why 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 internet dating is a disaster? <laughs> well, there's many, but I would, which, yeah. which one? <laughs> well, the, number the number one, one reason, the number one reason. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons like, you know, the paradox of choice, like swipe, 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 better, 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 better. That's horrible, right? But that's not it. The number one reason is because in, in dating apps, people curate for people who are just like themselves. Yep. They curate for compatibility, which is similarity, which as my adult kids would say, that's not hot to look like a to look for your sibling, <laughs> to look in the mirror and say, oh, that's what I want. No. But 71%, for example, of people who, who describe themselves as politically progressive, 71% say they will not date somebody who's not politically oh. progressive. Now, interestingly, 41% of conservatives say they won't date somebody who's not a conservative, which just shows that conservatives have lower standards. <laughs> conservatives are like, yeah, whatever. What, what do they look like? <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's impossible. If you're basically putting in your dating profile, I want somebody who likes, you know, tacos al asado. I want somebody who, you know, likes you know, classic Led Zeppelin. I want somebody who grew up in the outskirts of San Jose who votes the Democratic Party, who went to, you know, USC. I don't know what, fill in the blanks, and suddenly you have a null set of everybody except you. It's just so, look, there's a lot of biology that shows, by the way, that we're not attracted to people who are too much like us. There's a lot of, there's, exactly. a, there's, there's a wonderful study from the 90s that's since been replicated around the world in which these scientists, they go onto a college campus and they ask dudes to wear a t-shirt in for 48 hours and go like sweat it up. And then they take it out, dry it off, put it in a shoebox, and they poke holes in the shoebox, and they give the shoeboxes to women who don't know the guys and ask them to sniff the shoeboxes and rank the most attractive-smelling guys just by the smell of their sweaty T-shirts. Okay, now it turns out that by far, women uh, rank as most attractive the guys who are most immunologically different than they are. Different. Different race, different part of the – if the same country, different part of the country – really different upbringings. And part of the reason is because they're, they're, they're so far apart in the gene pool that they have different immunological profiles and they're sensing through the olfactory bulb in their brain that this is somebody, I better find him as hot because if I have kids with that person, our kids are going to have a better immunological repertoire. Yep. And so this is another example of even biologically, we need more complementarity and less compatibility and we're going to like each other a lot more. So the book goes through five challenges that we face socially right now with our relationships. We've started to unpack a few of them, but I'd, I'd love to dig into them because yeah. it really is a core tenet of the show. And many of our listeners are feeling these things, but they're not necessarily understanding how they can start to change and shift and build better relationships in their life. Right. So what's the first one? As you look at it, what are you thinking? What do you, what's the first one that's on your mind? Well, the first one for me was the homogeny because yeah. I, I find this over and over again. And even with our X Factor members, I challenge them to look outside of the box with who they're meeting and try to find activities that maybe on first glance wouldn't sound necessarily fun to them to meet people completely different than them, to bring in different perspectives that allow you to have different experiences. Yeah. And if it's a, if it's a potential romantic partner, it'll be much hotter. Um, is is the point that and look? This is just the science talking, like is what we're talking. So so you know, I, I say this from a scientific point of view. You're going to enjoy your life a lot more for sure. The second is basically understanding how to deal with conflict. One of the biggest problems that we find is that there's tons and tons and tons of conflict, but everybody's afraid of conflict. That's a that's 
craziness is the way that that turns out. The best way to have to have a lonely life is to be resistant to actually having disagreements with other people. We don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better and actually, in a lot of cases, to disagree more. That's actually what brings people together. When I talk to married couples, for example, you find that the, the coldest marriages never fight. Now, yeah. the marriages that fall apart, they fight like crazy, but they don't know how to fight is the way that that works. And so I work with couples all the time on how to fight. And actually, they do that. And a lot of people will say, it's kind of interesting, married couples will say, you know what, after we have, we haven't fought for a long time, you know, it's been weeks and weeks, we haven't seen each other, we have a big argument. And then for some reason, we always have sex afterward. It's like, it's not, it's not makeup sex. That's actually not right. A fight is the most intimate thing that you, that you have, because you actually said something that you believe that you've been not saying. And, and when somebody's super honest with you, and you're being super honest, you're just completely in love, even if you're angry. That's the way that that works. And that's what we have to keep in mind, that conflict can be incredibly healthy if we know the rules. I also want to add to that, and that's an incredible point. And when, to go back to a point that I was discussing about my, my dad's family and my mom's family, both of the, the grandparents stayed married until there was a, a death. And you could look at that and think they hated each other. They should have been divorced a long time ago. Or you can look at that saying they did what it took to stay married for that family for all those years. So you could say, and it depends on observation and a worldview, but learning to fight, learning to stay together, right? And, and that, that fighting plays an intimate role in that relationship and keeping those things together. Yeah, right. I mean, Nobody knows what's going on inside a, an individual couple, to be sure. Only the couple knows that. And you find out things about people after the fact, et cetera. You're always kind of surprised about that. But, you know, when we say that these older couples, the reason that they that they stay together is because of the social you know, strictures against divorce. That's not usually true. The number one reason is that they were highly complimentary to each other because they were probably set up by a loved one who thought they might make a kind of a good match based on their complementarity and their difference. And the second is because it was really, really inconvenient to split up, they learned how to have conflict. They just actually learned the rules of the road is what came down to. Now, when I'm working with couples, the number one thing that I work on is I listen to them having an argument. And all the couples that are really, really struggling, it's always me and you and I and you, and they're always talking about these personal pronouns, either in the first and second person, always move to the we and us pronouns. And, and it's going to change the way you think and change the way you fight, it turns out, because you don't say, you hurt my feelings. You say, we had an argument and that really hurt me. We had an argument that really hurt me. You're taking responsibility and you're defining the problem as a project for the two of you to solve. And so when you actually solve it, you've made progress together. It's like, it's like your, your, your fights become projects just because of the pronouns that you use. It's so critically important. And couples that always use we and us, always use we and us, they're a team and they don't split up is basically what you find. So that's, you know, uh, idea number one. Well, not only you're staying married together, you're growing together because if you had gotten married kind of early in life in your, in your 20s, you haven't really even discovered who you are, let alone your significant other. And that process, if you're able to be able to do that th together, only lends itself to building, constructing a North Star between you and your partner and working towards that together. This is actually one of the reasons that, that the, the 
marriages they tend to do better when they're startups than when they're mergers. You know, to use the industrial <laughs> language. And I and love so it. that's a good one. So people are like, you know, no, I got to get through law school and I need to get my career down. And, blah, 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 and then I'll think about marriage. That's the wrong order. Startups where people is like, we got nothing, we got nothing together. So you know, I fell in love with my my wife when I was twenty four years old, and man, I was like a starving musician in those days all the way through my 20s i had hair like you i mean it was that's why she (laughs) fell in love with me by the way and and we you know we got married we were poor we were we had big ideas we had dreams and we learned how to live together so that you know people change over the course of their life couples that are, are startups they tend to change together mergers it's harder and don't get me started on on hostile takeovers and acquisitions those those are really the <laughs> you can tell i teach in a business school <laughs> well i mean it, listen a marriage basically is a business arrangement the way it is presented on paper so let's be honest there yeah yeah and you know the mergers are the, i mean the, the mergers are the ones with the prenups by the way you know no startups have prenups i mean you i mean it, it just you don't Hence think about why your there's hostile the takeovers. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. And acquisitions, exactly right. <laughs> well, we've heard a lot of studies. You've mentioned it. Just that loneliness is rising, right? And yet, at the same time, we're making choices that don't move us away from loneliness, but entrench loneliness. Right. The streaming platforms and the empty calories. What are the choices we should be making around building relationships that can start to foster and form these real relationships that we need? So the key thing to keep in mind is eye contact and touch. Eye contact and touch. That's what we need to actually get the oxytocin. But those are also really good rules of the road for any sort of a relationship. Never substitute electronic um, you know, media for eye contact and touch unless you absolutely have to. So have an order of operations. See somebody in person if you can. If you can't, talk on the phone. If you can't talk on the phone, text. And only if then, if you can't, then actually use you know, lesser order, less contact means of communication with other people. And never, 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 never binge the bad substitutes. You know, when you're really lonely, don't binge social media. It's a complete mistake to do that. It's one of the things that we should always be thinking about that order of operations. The other thing is to just think about just in general, in this and every other subject, what it is that we want. And, you know, people, when the kids come into my class, I say kids, they're 28. You can tell I'm an old dude at this point. But, you know, they say, um, you know, I say, what do you want? They say, we're in this class, professor, we're here because we want happiness. I say, okay, I got it. What is it? And they can't define it. Stop thinking of your happiness as a feeling that you're chasing. Feelings are evidence of happiness, like like the smell of the turkey is evidence of your Thanksgiving dinner. Feelings are like smell, just evidence of the food. The real food is the enjoyment that you get in life, the satisfaction you get in life, and the meaning you get in life. Now, I can go through that, and I can actually diagnostically figure out where somebody's problem is, in the same way that I can go through, because I'm kind of a nutrition and fitness nerd, I can actually look at your uh, at your diet and say that you've got a macros problem because you're getting too much carbohydrate and not enough protein or whatever it happens to be. It's the same sort of thing. And so that's the that's where I really start with people, with their relationships or any other parts that, that I talk about a lot in, in this book and in every other other place that I write. So I find, for example, a lot of young, a lot of young, a lot of lone wolves, the big mistake that they're making is they're trying to get enjoyment in their life, but all they're getting is pleasure. Why? Because pleasure is a limbic phenomenon that, that sets a, cas- a neurochemical cascade in your brain going that you hit the lever and get the pleasure and it becomes a very short-term thing that wears off and then you, you get addiction, never happiness. What you need is the source of the pleasure plus people plus memory. 
that's what creates enjoyment. And so the rule of thumb for all the lone wolves, and we've all been lone wolves in our lives, dudes, we know what's going on here. How do you actually get happier? And the answer is you don't have to stop doing anything. You just have to stop doing it alone. That's the key. Don't drink alone. Don't have sex alone. That's the key thing because what that does is it severs the pleasure from the enjoyment by taking away the people and the memory, and then you're not going to get the happiness that you seek. So you can see that that this happiness science, this neurochemical happiness science is really important and very, very practical for our day-to-day living. So this goes to the the levels of the of friendship that were discussed in the book. And we were, uh, as you were mentioning with introversion, they tend to not have a lot of acquaintances, but they'll have maybe, uh, it's easier to have deeper relationships because there's less people in their lives and those relationships right. are more important. And then the opposite with extroverted people, um, they're going to tend to have more acquaintances, but less deeper friends. Now, herein lies an issue that, I've witnessed because AJ would consider me the extrovert and I, I would have to say uh, the, to both of us, yes, I'm the extrovert as I've gotten older, probably a little bit more of an ambivert. But however, in my extroverted days, I had tons of acquaintances. I could go anywhere. If I went to a bar, if I'm sitting next to you, guess what? You're my new best friend for the evening and we're going to have a blast and I'll see you again next week. However, outside of that, this is where I've recognized that I had become a lone wolf because though I had all these acquaintances, there wasn't anyone close to me. So if I was going to make plans, I wouldn't call anybody because I'm like, I'm just going to hang out with whoever's there. Well, I'm going to do this. Well, aren't you going to call somebody to see who's going? No, because whoever's there is going to be my new best friend for the evening. It almost goes to um, that idea uh, what's the movie AJ with um, single serving friends uh, on the, on the Fight club, fight club. Right. And, 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 and well being played, able AJ. to easily identify Yeah, <laughs> The first uh, rule. I of speak fight, Johnny. Well, the first <laughs> rule of fight club is not remembering the name of the movie, man. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Johnny nailed it. <laughs> and exposed AJ. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because I, I say in the intro of the show that I'm a recovering introvert and yeah. some listeners are like, what's wrong with being an introvert? And it's like, I've recognized that it has some weaknesses to it. It has some strengths, but it also has some weaknesses. I tend not to share my hopes and dreams with people. And because of that, I only have a few like really close, deep friends, but I can't go like Johnny, no plans, just go out socially and, and have as great of a time. Yeah, for sure. Now, the truth is you're, you're both bringing up a very important point, which is you know yourselves, and when you have the knowledge, you can consciously change your habits and design your life the way you want it to be. Look, John, you're going to be a, Johnny. You're going to be a, you're going to be an you're going to be an extrovert, but you can act in a way that introverts actually do and get happier as a result because now you know and you're doing it on purpose. And I had to learn to build deep relationships. I had to learn how to use uh, vulnerability to my advantage in order to build relationships, and then also become choosy about who was going to be coming into my life that I didn't bring in folks who would uh, destroy my core values or take me off of my game. Sure, and absolutely. so, and, and, and in learning this, I was, I was older and more aware of these behaviors in me that I wanted to fix. So it was a bit easier for me. However, for somebody who's younger, who, who may not be so aware of this is that each person that comes in is going to have a certain influence on your life to some degree. And you have to be able to manage that, whether it's going to be a large influence, a small influence or no influence at all. Exactly right. But, exactly right. but even to understand that, yes, I have a lot of acquaintances. Maybe I am extroverted, but I am a, I am a lone wolf. 
due to not having many people that I can discuss what's important to me, my values, my dreams, because it is those relationships uh, that are going to add the social pressures that produce you to being your best. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So you're basically trying to find this balance, understanding that left to your own devices and going through life, not thinking about it, you will be missing something big and you have to add it in on purpose. Now, remember, you know, we're all created in a particular way. We all have our differences. We all have our tendencies and our urges. And Mother Nature pushes along this path. But Mother Nature doesn't care, Johnny, if you're happy. She doesn't care. Not she wants you to nope. she wants you to be at the bar and meet more people and pass on your genes and survive for another day. She does not <laughs> care if you're happy. And that's true for all of us. And that re- that's the reason that know yourself, know the science, adjust your habits, teach the ideas. And what you'll get on is off the animal path and right onto the divine path. As sure as we're talking right now, I guarantee it's true. Beautiful way to end it. Our last question, we asked you before, but I wonder if it shifted at all. What is your X factor? What do you think makes you unique and extraordinary, Arthur? Yeah, you know, my X factor is the fact that I have learned that everything comes down to love. It all comes down to love. And when I'm when things are off, I've learned to ask myself, where's the love missing? Where am I denying the love that I need? Where am I pushing away the love that I need? Sometimes it's my love for the divine. My prayer life is, is, has become desiccated over a week period, for example. Sometimes it's because I've de- denied my love for, you know, the, for my lifelong companion on whom I will give my dying glance, which is my wife, Esther. And, and I've just been cold to her. Sometimes it's because my real friends have drifted a little bit. But that's my X factor, is my knowledge of the fact that I need more love to be happy. So the book comes out tomorrow. Where can our audience find out all the great resources from the book? Oh, it's arthurbrooks.com. It's got all the details. You can, you know, there's classes you can take. There's surveys that you can take. And so if you read the book, which I hope people do and get a lot out of, it's fast read. It's not a very long book. It's only a couple hundred pages. And then they want more. They can go to arthurbrooks.com and take all the surveys and, you know, take different classes and have uh, downloaded exercises that they can do. And and, uh, and just remember, Oprah and I wrote the book for, for you. Thank you, Arthur. It's great having you back. Thanks. It's great to see you guys. Thanks for what you're doing. You're making the world better. Thank you, Arthur. You too. Thanks. Johnny, we could talk to Arthur for hours. Well, I hope everyone had as much fun listening to that as we did putting it together because... Uh, as as you heard at the beginning, we just started talking, you hit record, and it was on from there. And the laughs and the great points and takes, I could talk to Arthur all day. And what I love about it is he actually applies the science in his own life. We've had a few guests on here who are very academic who might not have applied the science, but everything that Arthur shares, he's actually applying in his own life with great results. And I've really enjoyed his Atlantic pieces on a weekly basis. This week's shout out goes to Luke. Now, Luke is an X Factor Accelerator member, and he wrote us to say, hey there, my name is Luke, and I just had to share an incredible experience with the Art of Charm X Factor Accelerator program. Let me tell you, this program is a game changer when it comes to achieving true happiness and breaking free from my negative behavioral patterns. Before I found this program, I was stuck in a cycle of apathy and disappointment. I couldn't understand why I was constantly repeating the same mistakes, falling into the same patterns, and ultimately feeling frustrated. The program helped me identify my patterns that were not serving me. It was eye-opening to realize how many of them I was blind to and stood in the way of reaching my full potential. The program guided me in understanding the root causes of these patterns and actually provided me with tools and techniques to break free from them. 
As I started recognizing these harmful patterns, I was able to actively replace them with positive and empowering behaviors, growing my social circle, and improving my life. I learned how to communicate effectively, build strong connections, and create a life that genuinely brings me happiness. It's like escaping from my own prison. I was also able to recognize these behavioral patterns in my career as well. I became more confident and assertive, and my coworkers noticed a change. The impact it had on my overall being cannot be overstated. Now, if you're someone who feels stuck on a repetitive cycle, longing for genuine happiness and fulfillment, I wholeheartedly recommend the Art of Charm X-Factor Accelerator. It's a life-changing program that empowers you to break free from those negative patterns and ultimately discover the happiness that you truly deserve. Wow, Johnny, what a glowing recommendation from Luke, and it was a pleasure having him inside the program. Yes, well, that's my favorite thing is when we're able to lay out these processes and how you're able to identify these patterns, and then all of a sudden you begin to do that on your own, these are skills that you will have for the rest of your life. And the bigger takeaway is that for all of these folks who've been through this program, they always say the same thing. Why didn't they take it sooner? I, I've been spinning my wheels for years, and now I have the ability to, to not have to worry about it ever again. Well, Luke admitted he was a bit of a lone wolf before joining the program, and he actually found the community to be super supportive. So not only to see the patterns in himself, but to help others break free from the patterns is a rewarding part of the X Factor Accelerator experience. If you listen this far, my guess it's because you want more out of life and you learned that it all starts with relationships. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert looking to level up your social life or a lone wolf looking to build a wolf pack, our X Factor Accelerator Mentorship Program is designed to build elite social skills and shift your mindset to become a master relationship builder. Join us, the Art of Charm team, and hundreds just like you are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging their confidence, and growing an incredible network inside our world-famous X-Factor Accelerator program. Weekly implementation sessions are your skills dojo to level up and master the scientifically proven strategies you have learned from this show. Our high-value community of top performers is built to support your journey and create an environment that ensures your success. Grow your charisma, build your influence, and leverage your social capital to excel in work, love, and life. Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with the Art of Charm. What are you waiting for? Apply today at unlockyourxfactor.com. All right, before we head out, a huge thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Can you do us a huge favor and review this show on Apple Podcasts? If you found this episode interesting or gained insights from what we've shared, take a moment and let us know in Apple Podcast Reviews. We deeply appreciate your support, and we hope you have an epic week.